Hello, everyone. This is Chet Gray with Christian Hunters of America. We have a special guest today, Brian Dietz, who is a wildlife manager with Arizona Game and Fish. This is going to be a, a long, in-depth episode, but it's going to be a lot of information. We're asking questions that some of you have reached out and uh, wanted us to ask from a game manager's standpoint or from a wildlife manager or game warden. Um, depending on what state you come from, they are called different things, but they are all about conservation and all about enforcing those rules and um, following the North American model of wildlife. So follow along as we have a long in-depth and discussion with Brian Dietz from Game and Fish. Thank you. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Christian Hunters of America podcast. Today is a, a great day. We are actually at our first 100 degree weather this week in Phoenix, so we are not looking forward to the heat. But I am here with Chet. How you doing here, Chet? Doing great. Doing good, good, good. So we have a special guest today, um, one of our, our great network, I would say networking person, I would kind of call it, through a visual of somebody I saw at a youth mulder camp. So as you guys remember, Terry spoke on uh, Arizona Mule Deer Organization, what the great things that they do for the youth. And Christian Hunters America was there volunteering, helping take kids out. And from afar, we were watching this individual um, show up and basically helping the kids and get involved and out glassing and giving seminars and kind of giving a history. And, and it was really mind-boggling to see that Arizona Game and Fish Department, our wildlife managers, how involved they are with the youth, with the camps, and the difference they make. So I think sometimes we think of a wildlife manager or as an officer in one of their capacities as somebody that's just out there trying to bust people and do all this other stuff. And, and I think for me, I remember seeing it and just kind of realizing and talking to some other friends saying, what an amazing thing that the perception is completely different than what they do every day. So today we want to welcome in Brian um, with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. He's one of our unit managers. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea behind today is to what is the life of a wildlife manager? So um, we got, we're going to kind of go through it because I think um, my misinformation, my perception was completely off and we don't realize all of the different hats and everything that has to juggle from managing a, a large unit of the magnitude that you that you manage than to witness over a, a three-day youth hunt in Unit 42 and seeing you there for two days actually taking the kids and involved and talking to them and laughing and really making a difference in the lives of others. And I think that's that's a powerful message, especially as these youngsters are coming up, that respect of law enforcement, of somebody that has the authority that can actually write you a ticket and take away your hunting rights and all this other stuff that to hear you guys speak and talk about being open and honest and the grace and, and explain that accidents happen and this, all these magnitudes, it, it really puts everything in a completely different perspective of that, you know, that we really care about wildlife, but we also care about the individuals about doing the right thing. So, yeah, I mean, you know, just to talk on that a little bit, I, I my personal philosophy, and I, I think the department in general looks at this kind of the same way, uh, we're looking for people to do the right thing. We're looking for voluntary compliance, ultimately, is what it comes down to. Me coming out and writing you a ticket because you didn't you didn't tag properly or you shot from a road or you did something that you didn't even realize you were doing, that's that's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth as a hunter. 
both for the process of hunting, but also when you are reacting or, or engaging with the Arizona Fish, Game and Fish Department. And so <clears throat> there are people that certainly have those tickets coming to them that deserve to have that conversation, that deserve to go in front of the Game and Fish Commission and deserve to be revoked. But I think the vast majority of us when we're out there in the field, us being hunters and anglers, we're just out there trying to have a good time. And we're, I think we're all trying for the most part to do the right thing. And being able to recognize that, number one, and have the ability to show that discretion, number two, makes this one of the best jobs I've ever worked. It's absolutely amazing. And I love it on a daily basis, even when I'm encountering those bad guys. <laughs> right. Before getting too far ahead, let's... Uh... We got, like we said, Mike Mike introduced Brian. It's Brian Dietz. He's a game warden, wildlife manager from Arizona Game and Fish Department. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little back history on, on you? Sure. I graduated from Arizona State University with a master's degree in public administration. I have a bachelor's degree in bi uh, biology and a bachelor's degree, bleh, bachelor's degree in philosophy as well. Um, I came to Arizona in 96 for college and I never left. So I've spent the majority of my, all of my adult life. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm still not sure that I am an adult yet, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of my adult life in this state, I moved here from Colorado and, uh, I'm slowly migrating South. I was born in Montana. So I, I figure eventually I'll end up in, <clears throat> I don't know, Costa Rica by the time I retire or someplace, <laughs> something like that. But um, <clears throat> and everybody here is tired of the heat and, yeah. and goes, goes up to the north to, to see what snow's like. <laughs> it, well, you, you can only shovel so much before you say, I'm, I'm done right. with the shovel. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I've worn a lot of hats over my lifetime. Um, this was not a career that I set out to do from the beginning. And I think that's unique well, not unique, but it's unusual compared to a typical wildlife manager or game ranger. I think a lot of people, when they get into this profession, they look at this as something that they have wanted to do from the time they were a kid. Right. You know, they went hunting with their dad or their mom, and they met a ranger and just thought it was the coolest thing to be out bouncing around in a truck all year long looking for deer. Right. right. And I, I think that's, that's a a pretty common um, mindset, and, and it's a pretty common occurrence. A lot of rangers are like that. I, I was a little bit different in that I didn't find this job, this career, until much later. Um, I, I graduated from uh, Southern, Southern Arizona Law Enforcement Training Academy, Seletsi for short, which is down in Tucson. And uh, <clears throat> I did that when I was 40. And uh, police academy is not a joke when you're fit and 22. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, completing it at 40 is, I think, I hope it's a testament to my resolve and, and my intentions. And right. I'm, I don't regret any minute of it. Maybe the OC spray to the face, but as I... <laughs> that, that's never fun. <laughs> so did you grow up hunting and fishing at all or... This just was a, a, a career path that kind of opened up and you saw, you know, the light. 
Yeah, it's weird. Um, law enforcement never really held a lot of appeal to me. Um, to become a police officer was not my goal from the beginning. I think there are people that are set up for it and built for it, and then there are the rest of us, right? Um, I grew up fishing, and uh, I didn't do a lot of hunting. Um, but when you live in Montana, deer, deer opening week is basically a, a religion. So school's out for that week. <laughs> yeah, <yep. laughs> a lot of states are like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So... Um, so I was at least on the periphery of it from the get go. Um, I've always been outdoorsy. I've always been a hiker. I've always been a, an animal watcher, animal lover, I guess. I don't know that I would qualify as a bunny hugger. <laughs> I leave that for my wife. That's, right. that's yeah. her, her title. But, um, yeah, I've always been involved. I, I love fishing. Um, I don't get to do it nearly as much as I would like. And that's one of the the drawbacks of the job, if you will, is, you know, you, you spend so much time trying to help everybody else's hunt, whether it's through the game management or literally assisting a hunter with, like with the youth hunt that you were talking about, you're you're always, you're, you're so busy with that kind of thing that you don't have a lot of time on your own to be able to go out and do that, which is okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a sacrifice that I'm, I'm okay making. Right. It is It yep. is a sacrifice for sure. That's, I think, a lot of misconception, too, that everybody's like, oh, these these wildlife managers, they know where every big game is. They know where everything is. And, and that may be true, but guess what? If, if they're out working, if you're out working when, uh, when the rest of us are hunting, you can't be hunting either. Um, and there are, you know, a shortage supply of people qualified to be a wildlife manager so it's not like everybody could take off and go hunting if even though that, that that's your passion mm -hmm. um, so i totally get it it's just like you know a mechanic that works on cars all day the last thing sometimes they want to do is go home and work on their car even though they're the best at it they've been doing that for 40 50 hours that week so i totally understand what um what, how did you get your first taste into this or who did you meet that made you even have your eyes open in order to pursue this career? Yeah, that's, that's um, it was slow. It was a slow burn, if you will. I started out, I started with the department in 2014, July of 2014 as a dispatcher. Okay. It was my first job with the department. And um, I looked at that position, honestly, as a foot in the door. And that's exactly what it was. But my intention with a biology degree and a philosophy degree and a public administration degree and carry on and so forth, I like education. I'm a fan. Everybody should go to school. Absolutely. Stay in school. Um, <clears throat> it's, it, it, I started out in that position thinking that I would, I would try to waylay that into some sort of field work or something that involved biology and dispatch when, when you are a dispatcher, you're working with law enforcement day in and day out. You're working with other people too. There's a lot of human wildlife interactions that I would take a call on. You know, there's a coyote in my backyard, for example, mm -hmm. and the caller is freaking out, but I gained those de-escalation skills that are so critical to law enforcement just through doing that work. And I really, got the meat of what being a wildlife manager means, at least from a law enforcement standpoint, from working in that job. Because I 
I got to do pretty much everything that a wildlife manager does that includes the de-escalation, includes the information gathering, includes the, you know, the investigation. The only thing that I didn't have was the literal tool belt that I am currently wearing um, that enables me to go out into the field and, and do what, right. what needs to happen there. So, you know, it was, it was a combination of learning what the job actually is. And then, um, for me, uh, it, it involved a series of really great mentors and discussions with those mentors. Um, people, people get into this job and they don't leave. I have, uh, I have an officer right now, Lee Ludiker in, He's in 6A, I believe, up in the Sedona area. He's been an officer for, I want to say, 48 years. Wow. Oh, my Lord. Damn, man. And that's, I don't even know that he's been at John Herbert in Region 4 down in the Yuma office. He's, he's, he still carries his badge, and he's been on, I think, for 47 years or 49 years. The two of them are competing for, you know, longest tenure. It's (laughs) ridiculous, but... (laughs) But officers get into this job, and it's it, it's it's a job of of love, and um, you know, uh, having the conversations with those people and understanding their mindset and understanding that there's metaphorically speaking more than one way to skin a cat. Mm-hmm. Um, you you learn that um, you can make the difference and find your own niche working the job the way that you want to work it and they give enough latitude the management gives enough latitude here to enable you to do that so if you are um, a very law enforcement minded person you can focus on law enforcement if you are a little light on the law enforcement there's still it's still there you know 50 percent of my job that's a, the interesting thing about my job description is it's only 50 percent law enforcement the other 50 percent is being a biologist. Name it. Right. <laughs> I'm a biologist. I'm a liaison for the department. I am a mentor for children. I am uh, for, you know, for young hunters or, or anglers. I am um, the contact point for ranchers and, and landowner, uh, landowner relations. I'm, I am the department. I'm representing the department. And when you're in the field and you encounter me, I am the game and fish department. Right. And as a result... I have to mind my P's and Q's pretty closely, but once you get a hang on that and, and you understand what it is that you need to do, it, it becomes a pretty simple job and very fulfilling because you know that you're representing to the best of your ability and you know that the department's going to be happy with what it is that you're doing. 100%. You, you mentioned you went down to uh, Tucson for the academy, which is the acronym Seletsi. Um what other training did you do um, other than the police academy in order to get prepared for uh, the career in as a game warden yeah. or wildlife manager as it's known here? Um, well, the dispatching absolutely helped. I mean, that was like the pre-training training, right, where I got to learn what all the different calls were and how those calls were more often than not handled. And right. How do you... How do you handle a different, you know, it just, it, 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 it really kind of laid the groundwork there. The, the academy showed me how to be a police officer, how to, I learned how to fight. I learned how to take a punch. I learned how to 
shoot take a, OC spray. In the, take in OC. The eyes. Yeah, I still haven't learned how to do that one. That's nobody learns how to do that. Not not graciously anyway. <laughs> um, but um, beyond that, then we have uh, our post academy training, and and that's where the meat of being a wildlife manager specifically really kicks in. That's where you really learn about. Um, the specifics of wildlife investigations, the specifics of wildlife interactions, you know, not necessarily somebody hunting or anything, but I saw a bear in my backyard or, you know, I saw a mountain lion. What do I do? Probably where you start learning the, the law specific to, um, game and fish as well, where the Academy is more, I'm sure traffic related and, and regular, Title 13 criminal related where they're going to gear you towards knowing those laws in and out that are yeah. you know a lot more geared towards wildlife management. It's it's threefold. Uh, you learn the the wildlife management, the the hunting regulations, hunting and fishing regulations. You learn off highway vehicle regulations because we're the main authority for off highway vehicle um, policing. Mm-hmm. And then, so your quads and your side by sides and things like that, uh, and, and then boating. Um, That's true. We're, we are the we are the boating law enforcement agency in the state. There are other agencies that do the work, but they report to us, and then we report to um, lost my train of thought. <laughs> we we report to the li- uh, uh, not lifeguard the um, coast guard. Okay. So yeah, any any and all accidents and and law enforcement activity goes through Game and Fish, and then that goes to Coast Guard from them. Because some of the sheriff's deputies patrol on those lakes, but they still are working relationships with you. Then that's exactly right. MCSO Maricopa County Sheriff's Office is working at Pleasant or Bartlett, but they still are relying on you know the teamwork with Game and Fish as well. Yeah, I mean we we all operate separately and independently um, when we're on the water, but in, in the end that that information all gets run through the department. And all your boating registration, all of your off-highway vehicle registration, that all goes through the department as well. So everybody if not familiar, if you go up to Ben Avery's headquarters off of uh, Carefree Highway just west of the interstate, you'll see everybody's going up there at the last minute probably and that's why some of them get get upset but there's only so many customer service people to help you and uh you're trying to get your tags renewed before you put that boat on the water or you're you you need this or you need that or you need the you know trailer inspected it's uh it all takes place up there so when you're trying to to get that done i'm sure it's a public service announcement to plan accordingly and don't wait till the last minute right (laughs) we try to try to do that yeah um what how does how does once you complete that academy and once you complete your post academy do you go out on um like field training and Mm -hmm. and complete that and and at that point do you know where you're going to be stationed throughout the state or do you have a say in any of that yeah so uh fto field training uh operations i think would be the best way to put that that's that's where we really show what we know and what we can do mm-hmm. um and we we operate under right now it, it's a three phase and then a final evaluation um process your your first phase evaluator also is your final evaluator and so they get to see your progression from when they had you in the beginning to where you ended up with your 
training and right. your, your ability. And that <clears throat> that whole process is it's designed to weed out any and all shortcomings to make sure that I, as an officer, when I go out into the field, can actually do the job without freezing up or getting myself into a situation, confrontation where yeah. I don't want to be, you know, it's so much of this job involves. Most of the people you come in contact with have firearms and your backup is a long ways away. Yes, that is absolutely right. So you have to, you, you can't go in as, as uh, if you pardon my French, Billy Badass and, uh, uh, just just raise a lot of ruckus. You you have to be very cognizant of, of the and respectful of the people that you're dealing with, which I think is how policing should be done in the first place. But Correct. not everybody agrees with that philosophy. So, right. um, nevertheless, uh, with the the multitude of different people that are out there, and m- many of them are armed and armed with high powered rifles, and y- you have to. Um, you have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to handle yourself appropriately. And, and that's what the field training exercises really do is, is it gives you the opportunity to learn how to be better at, at the job. And it's, it's a beautiful thing um, after, after having gone through the process and then going back and helping the new recruits that are going through to train. Uh, I get to see different ways that I can actually improve on my ability and my technique through the teaching of these other <clears throat> new officers and, and their techniques. Absolutely. Especially when I get to play the bad guy and I can be a jerk and, right. and you know, I, I can, I can bring to the table things that I've experienced in the field and see how they handle it and then add to my repertoire based on their reaction to it. It's, it's a win-win when you get to help out in, in those situations, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, you can't take that knowledge away, right? Mm-mm, absolutely. True. And you made me think something. I'm probably going back to the mid-'80s when I went through my hunter safety, and one of the hunter safeties was a WM. And what he always said is when you come in contact, first thing you do is you unbolt your rifle, mm-hmm. you lay your pistols on the ground, and you just back up and, and release that respect. And it's funny here, 35, 40 years later, I'm 48 now. When I come in contact and it's on a rifle hunt, that's the first thing I do is I unbolt, I lay everything out, I lay all the firearms just to show that I respect you, everything's right here, and it's amazing the difference of the interactions you have where, because as you know, you don't know if somebody's still holding that rifle on their shoulder or they got a handgun on their, you know, that you just don't know. And I think that's something that's something as, as you said, with policing across the board, no matter what your interaction with law enforcement, if you just take those couple of extra steps, just removing those threats, I think that really changes the mindset completely of that interaction. Absolutely. I, I think it depends on the circumstance. I mean, I've certainly surprised a couple of people when they were in the process, and they didn't have the opportunity to to make those kinds of adjustments without very quick and furtive movements, and that that puts any officer on, on edge <laughs> yeah, <for laughs> when sure. you start seeing somebody panic moving because you don't I mean, I have to, I have to maintain my safety, right? We, we, I don't know how much you guys have talked about this, but when you're dealing with law enforcement, if, if at the end of the day, if it's a question of, of me or him or me or her, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I'm going home to my family and that's, that's how it has to be. But just, just because that's a mindset of every officer that's out there, that doesn't mean that, that you as a hunter or angler who is armed 
has to be concerned about what you're doing when we're around. I mean, it's very, I mean, I, I've talked to people holding their rifles and their shotguns and, and had no issue with them whatsoever. In fact, I've had a lot of, I've had a couple of different folks that are like, hey, come take a look at this gun. And they, they unholster and they shot. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's slow down just a minute. Yep. Um, you know, when, when you're dealing with a, a ranger in the field, it's, it's best to let them dictate how you are handling the weapon. And they will tell you exactly what you need to do in order for them to feel comfortable and everybody to stay safe. Right. Yeah, 100%. Yep. And I think that's where I was kind of, I remember as a young kid, I was really inspired by that. So now it's like, that's the first thing I do. Even like a few times I've been pulled over, first thing I do is I roll all my windows down and if it's at nighttime, the lights are on. And, you know, if I have firearms in there, I do put my hands out the window, just declare it. Just, you know, I got firearms in the vehicle and it just kind of changed that whole mindset for sure. It, policing, uh, and I don't know how far down this road you guys want to go, but policing these days and, and interactions with police is such a different a thing compared to even when I was a kid, you know, there's, there's so much more concern for safety and there's so, everything is so hyper escalated and rightfully so. I mean, when, when people are dying at the hands of police, that's, there, there's reason to pay attention to that from both sides, from, from our side, from behind the badge and from your side, from in front of the badge, you know, mm-hmm. um, everybody needs to be looking at this and everybody needs to be doing what they can to make the situation better. If I'm policing you and you're saying you're doing it wrong, I need to pay attention to that because I may not have a job afterwards if, mm-hmm. if it comes down to it and somebody decides, oh, you really weren't doing it that, that the right way. Correct. Oh, great point. Yeah. Um, to your question about where I ended up and, and how I got there, um, about midway through the training, and it's I think it's different with every class as they come through, um, we got a list of districts that were open and available and uh, we were amongst ourselves able to choose and and sort of fight over who gets to go where (laughs) gotcha (laughs) um if if we could all come to consensus because they they gave us a number that was specific to the number of trainees that were in the group um if we could all come to a consensus about where we wanted to end up then that's where we ended up. If we could not come to that consensus, then we would interview for the position and, you know, may the best man or woman win at that point. So um, I ended up in, I started out in Unit 20C and Northeastern 44A, and uh, some housing issues came into play, so I had to move, and I ended up in 42 and... Um, it's, it's been a good move. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's a tough, tough gig for a family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's tough when you're single because you're trying to get out there and meet people. And there's obviously when you're living in some of those remote places, it's, you're pretty limited in how, who oh, you yeah. can meet with. But, uh, I think it's, it's just as difficult with, with your family. Um, you know, you're, especially if your spouse works, you, you have to make sure that they're going to be happy. Otherwise you're not going to be happy. That's right. just the way that that works. Exactly. Right? Um, and, and same with your kids, you know, if they're not happy with what's going on, you're going to, you're going to be far more miserable as a, as a father than, than you would be otherwise. So it's always something you got to keep in mind. This, this job, at least for now, and they're, they're having some discussions right now about, um, can can the housing 
policies be changed at this point. But the, the, the pol policy as it stands is you as an officer need to reside within the district that you um, police. And they have specific towns or cities or sites where they want you to find a place. And, right. and what, what they are encountering now is a group of people who they're, they're either it's impossible to find affordable housing, which I frankly, I think that's everywhere in the state at this point, given Correct. everything, um, or, <clears throat> or there's just no housing available mm -hmm. in that it's so, it's such a small community that there's just nothing that's open for them to right. live. So they have to find alternative housing and it's, it can be rough. Yeah. I can only imagine, mm -hmm. um, some people love the desert. Some people love, you know, pine trees. So being able to go throughout the state is one of the huge bonuses for being a state officer with the game and fish that if you had family here and you had resources close to town, you have a, you know, 42 or 26 M and you're in charge of, you know, units closer to Phoenix, even though you may love the outdoors, there's different things that can benefit versus if you are single and young, um, living out in the middle of nowhere may benefit you better because you don't have kids. You don't have a spouse that works or whatnot, but there's drawbacks, pluses and minuses to, to both. I can imagine are, are some units looked at or some areas of, um, that there, you guys are in charge of looked at as like prime spots. Like that's where I want to be, or is it based just solely on that's where I want to work or are there certain species of animals that live in units that people are really, interested about if that makes sense yeah no it, it absolutely does i i would say it's a combination um i think that there are some districts out there that that would be as you put it prime cut right mm -hmm. is that the <laughs> <laughs> um they're they're desirable cer certainly um but that's not the case necessarily for everyone i mean and and it's you know name the name the criteria and this, you know, district X might work great for one officer and be perfect. Whereas for, you know, another officer, it'd be the, the absolute worst place to be. Right. You know, there are people that can't stand the cold, so they don't want to be up in the snow, which is, you know, I get that. I didn't, I don't want to shovel any more snow, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there are yep. people that also don't want to romp around in a desert all year long. So I, I, I get it. And, and there are um, aspects to both. It's interesting Historically, um, the department has seen a big draw of people in the past to those more northern areas in, in Region 2 and in Region 1, and and those districts were always full up, and the officers were there for their entire career, basically, once they were there. Um, we've seen a shift recently from the desire to be in those more remote units to wanting to be more in the metro units. And it has to do with what is your spouse doing? What do your kids need? Mm -hmm. Good schools, uh, extracurricular activities that can, right. where's the nearest grocery store? You know, these kind are of important, kind of important stuff. Yeah. Do you have to drive 15 minutes to get to your local gas station or is it, you know, down right. the street around the corner? You know, right. that's, those are all, you, you have to weigh a lot of these different things. And, and so we've seen a transition in the department from, from that desire to be in those far away cast off units to being closer to some of the major metro areas. I mean, certainly there's, there are still those folks that want to be remote and, 
uh, I can tell you I'm torn. I want to be both. I, I love being out, you know, way off in the boonies and, and toolies and, and doing that thing. But I also understand, uh, you know, how, how important it is to do what I need to do for my family and, and for them. And, and that's, that's critical. And it's, it's a, it's a question that's individual to each officer and, right. and how they, how they see what they need. Well, I, I totally get that. Um, what, I know you said you're a big angler. Do you do any hunting at, at all yourself? Uh, and if so, what kind of a two part question, if you do any hunting and what's your favorite big game species? I know that's, those are two big questions, but they were, <laughs> they're at the forefront of the mind. I don't want to lose them. Um, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of quail actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm more of a just walk and stalk. I don't I don't have dogs or anything, so um, you know, find a wash and walk the wash. But um, that one's easy to scout for. <laughs> yes. You are okay. I'll piggyback off of that answer. Yeah. Of the three species that we have here, yeah. what's your favorite quail species? Uh, Gamble's the only one that I've gone after. Okay. And so that's it's got to be Gamble. But All right. you know, they're fun. They're I mean. It's not the emblem of my department for no reason. Right. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're uh, personable. They're just dumb as a box of rocks sometimes, <laughs> but, but that's fine. But they make you pull your hair out sometimes too. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And, and they're beautiful. Um, they're beautiful. So, okay. Your favorite hunting for yeah. big game species would be quail for bird hunting. Yeah. Uh, for an ungulate or a big mammal. What, what are you... What do you like? Or if it's not a, an ungulate, any, any of the big, big game? I mean, I think, I think elk is probably where everybody wants to be, right? And, and I'm not going to lie, elk tastes great. Oh, Got, yeah. Gotta love it. Um, but, uh, and I haven't, I haven't been on this hunt yet, so it's, I can't speak to it for sure, but I think bighorn. I think that's the one that really kind of stands out to me. It's it's such an endeavor. It's such a test of your ability, and uh, you know you get to see some really rugged, really beautiful country when you're doing that. Um, I will say, of the ten big game species that we have in the state, turkey's probably up there too. Well, the, Mike and I are huge, yeah. uh, yep. huge fans of turkey. Mike yeah. just got back. From uh, Oklahoma hunt, uh-huh. and our buddy just got back from Colorado. Um, Mike was successful, right, with uh, uh-huh. with the Rios, and our yep. buddy Howard was successful with the Merriams in uh, Southern Colorado. Nice. And yeah, there's nothing like yep. waking up in the morning and hearing those gobbles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. love it, love it. So I want to expand on that. So part of what your day to day is looking at water catchment, specifically for sheep, and you're having to do a bunch of hiking. You want to expand on that because I think that's a critical thing that most people don't realize how much effort and time you're performing actually in in your unit actually observing and hiking and verifying and as it relates to some of the sheep some of these are very remote in order just to go and verify that they have the resources and the water they need especially in the drought that we've been experiencing for many years here in Arizona. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll, I'll actually expand on that a little bit and, and let's just back up. So we, we talked a little earlier about my uh, you know, what does this job entail? Mm-hmm. And the, the career or the job description, if you will, as I said, was 50% law enforcement. The other 50% involves 
everything biology, everything landowner management, everything, uh, you know, education-wise, all of that stuff. So, so when you start diving into the biology of it, um, managing these animals, managing these herds of, of ungulates and, and any of the, the species that are out there, honestly, water, where I am, the region four, the southwestern part of the state, water is probably the most limiting factor for any and all species that are out there. That goes for deer, that goes for bighorn sheep, that goes for mountain lions, that goes for coyotes, that goes for you, all of your small game, all of your non-game, even the birds that are out there. Your, your limiting factor 99% of the time is going to be water. And, and that's because the food that these animals are dependent upon also depends on the water, right? So um, the way that, that we mitigate that as a department is we have specific water catchments that we, developments that we have built, um, some of these in pretty remote places, some of them in, in fairly easily accessible places. And uh, per our policy, we're checking those water catchments every 30 days. And when I say checking water catchments, I mean, I go in, I walk up to the trough, and I walk up to the reservoir if I can. I will measure the depth of the water at the trough and I'll measure the depth of the water at the reservoir so I can see what the difference is between the two because we've got some that were built by private contractors and maybe they didn't level it out just the right way. So mm -hmm. you could have six inches in the reservoir and have the trough be dry. If the reservoir is six inches of water and the trough is dry, the animal still can't access that water. So effectively, you've, you have to eliminate that six inches. Anyway, I, I digress. I have to measure that and monitor that and and I measure it every 30 days because what I can determine based on that information is how quickly the water catchment is going dry whether it's through evaporation or through animal use and or combination thereof and based on that now I can predict when this water catchment is likely to go dry and I can also make requests to have water delivered to these catchments if all things being equal, we don't receive any rain or any, any other precipitation. Uh, if the use stays the same, the temperature stay the same, so on and so forth, we know that it will dry out by, by a certain time. And so a big part of my day-to-day -day activities involves driving to these different catchments and checking the water to see that they're okay. And also the perimeter fence, because a lot of my property, a lot of my catchments exist in BLM, so there's there are burrows, and if they get in, they will drink all of it, probably all of the water. <laughs> For sure, absolutely. It's, I don't know what the what the uh, fractions are, but I think a, a, a full grown adult mule deer uh, drinks probably a tenth of what an adult burrow will drink in Incredible. in a given day. Just the amount of water use necessary for the burrows versus the deer is it's it's legitimate fractions small fractions and so we have to be mindful of that we and if there are it's interesting i have to have uh, some construction knowledge some fencing knowledge some engineering structural engineering knowledge in order to to be able to to make the repairs that need to be done or even determine what the problem is um you know we've had some newer catchments that have gone in that just randomly started leaking. And so we've had to, we had to do troubleshooting with that to figure out where is the water going? Why is it not holding? Why is it not collecting? Mm -hmm. You know, 
Um, and, and so <clears throat> after 30 days, um, you know, I go out, I check it again, and, and then I can graph it. We've got a, a whole uh, computer program that, that pays close attention to that and, and um, extrapolates on the data and, and really shows us what we need to uh, manage that water and keep that water on the ground. It, we've got water catchments that are built specifically for mule deer. We've got water catchments that are built specifically for bighorn sheep. And the difference there in your accessing those catchments is it can be stark. <laughs> Put on your hiking shoes if you're going to go into some of these sheep catchments because you can't drive to them. Right. Yep. And, and so what kind of vertical distance and what kind of overall distance do you think your some of these catchments would be that you're having to physically leave your truck? Let's say it's July or June. It's 105 degrees out, hot. You're actually hiking across the desert by yourself. And how far of terrain is, is that kind of a loop like that? To, and also take your measuring sticks in order to measure everything. Properly. Right. Yeah, you, you learn how to shed pounds very quickly while you're hiking into those places. And, and most of the weight that you're carrying is usually the water that you're going to drink. Um, and you also time it, right? You have, to, you have to be mindful about what time you're leaving the house in the morning and what time it's going to take you to get to the catchment and actually start hiking out there. And you, you aim for the cooler leave temperatures. It, right? Leave at 3 o'clock in the morning to get there and hopefully up at the summit at, at 7. Exactly, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> it depends on the, on the catchment, too. I mean, the, there's, a, there's a catchment in the, um, the southern part of the Bighorn Mountains Wilderness Area. Uh, southwestern part of it. It's called Arch Tank. And that one, I, I, you know, I haven't actually measured the elevation, so I couldn't tell you that. But because it's wilderness, you have a long way to hike. And I, I think we measured it at just, just over 2.2 miles one way, which is not terrible um, if you're on a nice flat, even trail. But this is cross country, let's go climb a hill, right. let's go climb up more hills, let's go over this hill, let's go down this wash, et cetera, et cetera. So. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why sheep's once in a lifetime. Yeah. And when one of your buddies gets drawn, everybody's willing to help, one, to see if they have the gumption to do it, and two, to kind of live vicariously through that person. Uh, you're, you've got lots of help carrying it even downhill. Um, even on that big of a, an animal is challenging and you want all that help you can get because you want to get that trophy down safely and you want to get all the meat down safely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for the desert bighorn, I'm sure everybody listening knows you're going to be going through a lot of cactus, a lot of things that want to poke you and stick you. And, and even in the environment where some of our, uh, Rockies live, you're still going to come across that, but, even higher elevation, possibly. Yep. Can you expand on that at all? About what you encounter when you're hunting? Yeah, or like, like what, what kind of terrain you're going to be encountering where some of our Rocky Mountain bighorns are versus where our dig, our desert bighorns are. No, I haven't worked with uh, Rockies. Okay. So I can't tell you the specifics for them. I can tell you that our deserts... Um, they're running around in areas where you would not expect to see anything living, to be honest. Um, you know, very little vegetation. The vegetation that you do see is covered in spines and not to be trifled with. Right. Uh, jumping cactus is probably my least favorite <clears throat> cactus in the history of the world. Sure. 
Yeah, everybody that hunts here knows about uh, <laughs> is. I learned very quickly to walk with my heels apart and to carry, you know, a knife and comb and pliers with me at all yep. times right. because they just don't, they're relentless. Yep. Um, you're, you're scrambling up. Uh, I, I hope you like heights and I hope you like rock climbing because to get to these places, you, you're doing a lot of climbing and, you know, obviously if you're carrying your rifle with you, that's going to, that poses it's a, a huge taxing. challenge. Yeah, it does. Um, <clears throat> and it, you know, snacks and drinks and the whole nine yards. They, the only really redeeming thing about the hunt season for sheep, I think is that it, it does take place in December. Right. So you're at least mitigating against some of the heat there, but. Um, yeah, that'd be rough as an August hunt. Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh yeah. You'd, you'd never get the meat out in time. No. Uh, yeah. By the time you got over to that animal, it's hard, mm-hmm. you know, even in, for archery deer, uh, it, it warms up in a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah, but to think about that, so I think you touched on it when we were talking before, is using helicopters. That's how you guys have to physically fill up those. When you determine that that water's running out to keep those sheep alive, you're actually employing helicopters to do that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, we we contract helicopter work actually out of the Grand Canyon. Their, their flight service up there comes down and they'll long line for us. They'll run water. We'll drop a a Bambi bucket and uh, a pool down at a base someplace where we can get our water trucks to deliver water to, um, or sometimes straight out of the canal, depending on what the circumstances are. But um, they'll come on, they'll take a Bambi bucket up and drop it one Bambi bucket at a time. And that's, it's a pretty interesting process to watch. Um, I've, I've been on the ground where the water's been collected and I've been on the ground where the water's being dumped. And it's a, it's a it's a nice, refreshing shower of really murky, muddy water that right. gets <laughs> That's true. Dumped what, on you. What, uh, two questions mm-hmm. off of that. One, what is a Bambi bucket? Yeah. And two, how many gallons does one of those hold? Uh, if I if I told you a number, uh, I'd be lying because I don't remember. But it's a it's a small amount. It's probably 250 gallons, I would estimate, at okay. a time. Okay. So a Bambi bucket is a... Uh, contraption that hangs from the bottom of the uh, helicopter and it's a it's a long line so it's way down Um, they dip that into the water and it comes up and it looks just like a normal kind of cloth bucket except that there's a a cinch in the bottom of it and the pilot has control from that or uh, of that from from his cockpit so he drives it over flies it over hovers where he needs it to be and then he'll release that that uh, cinch, and then the water comes siphoning wow. out, and it's it's a process, but it gets the water up there, and our sheep benefit from it. Absolutely. So if it's bone dry and it's a horrible season, um, like last year and kind of what we're seeing already with no monsoons and no precipitation, we had some good snow up north, and hopefully that helps, but they're having to make numerous trips in order to fill a big catchment at 200 gallons, 250 gallons each, and then you're having spillage and and whatnot. So it's not even a true 250, I would imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, it takes a number of trips to get the thing filled. Most of these, most of these catchments are engineered around already occurring natural Tanahas. Okay. And um, a lot of them are mitigated for evaporation as well to where the water's there but it's not being not being lost except through wildlife use. That's good. 
which is a, a very good thing. Um, <clears throat> and they're they're designed, they're built in such a way, I, like most of these catchments, I don't actually know what the true volume is. I can give you a good estimate on what their size is, but I don't know what the true volume is because the shape is dynamic. Because mm-hmm. um, it's it's basically built into it's a little... It's not a into rectangle. The right, exactly. Um, the, uh, the way that they're built really helps us to minimize the amount of flights that we have to do but when they do come up uh, it's kind of it's kind of an all hands on deck deal and the most expensive part of that is the fuel it's the it's the helicopter itself you know right. and and that's where that's where we really um, that's where our hands get tied most frequently is finding the the money to be able to to fly those flights and get the water where it needs to be we're so so rain dependent mm-hmm. with those catchments and so if the rain doesn't come, we're we're forced to use these other other means, and as much as we don't like it, that's that's what we have to do. Right. What yeah. um, what can the public do to help with the the water situation? I know uh, us at Christian Hunters of America, we have uh, lots of volunteers that either will relay it to us, and we relay the information if there is uh, a valve broken or a float broken or pipes broken, or we've, we've delivered uh, plenty of water to a lot of different catchments, and we just got a, awarded a grant in order to pay for a 510-gallon uh, water tank so that we can use. But I know several of us have used our own, you know, 55-gallon barrels that you have hanging off the back of your truck just to, to fill them up. Just, and you're not even hunting that unit, you know. Like, we just go off of... We hate to be uh, kind of preachy, but a lot of people, the biggest conservationists are hunters. We want those animals to thrive, and we want them to be around for generations to come. I've taken numerous uh, trips with a buddy out to 42 where you're at and, and fill, you know, tankments, tanks out by the white tanks with a 55-gallon barrel uh, just because it's bone dry at the time. And, you know, there's only so much time in a week to get your guys as employees or volunteers, but over there to fill it up, what can, uh, like a public service announcement, what can some of the guys do that are hunters or just conservationists or want to keep those animals um, healthy? What can people do on their own in order to help with the the water aspect? Yeah, excellent question. And, uh, you know, if I were a better officer, I would have been prepared for that and had it just at my fingertips ready to go. Um, I, put you on, I put you on the spot. No, but that, I do okay. know on Facebook, I get the pop-ups, and they say Arizona Game and Fish Department, donate here for Water for Wildlife, and they have they do a, a campaign. So I bet you I see that pop-up three to five times a week just on Facebook. There. And I think that's a fantastic means, too, because that money's going right to Game and Fish, and earmarked for the, the wildlife managers to use those funds specifically so yeah that, that's exactly i mean that's that's a, a a perfect spiel are you are you in, in the market for a job because i'm sure we can <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um yeah. Th- there's a couple of different things you can do actually so uh first and foremost um money to be able to fly is critical um to get the water in there is critical and we have the process down we know how to do it without uh, while creating the the least impactful footprint doing that process and and for some of these you know like if it's in, wil- in 
wilderness, designated wilderness area, there's we have to get special permission even to just fly in, let alone, right. you know, nobody can drive in there. So it, it gets tricky. But um, so if you go to the our website, azgfd.com, and you snoop around in there a little bit, there's actually a link in there for wildlife conservation, and you can adopt a catchment. There's an adopt a catchment program. There's a link in there. It'll tell you all the different information on these catchments and and what you can do to help. Um, if you're a more hands-on, less handout money kind of person, which is okay, um, we have opportunities for volunteer volunteering uh, with the department. And in those scenarios, you can actually go out. In, in the situations that I'm talking about where they're flying helicopters in and running water, you can be on the ground and helping with the process there. Uh, and I've certainly we've seen vol- plenty of volunteers at water catchment developments, um, at development projects, I should say, where they're up there helping to build the catchments as well. Um, some of it can be a little, uh, a little more simple in that you're just driving out to a catchment and measuring it, just mm-hmm. like what I was talking about. And then you report that information back to me, and it, it frees me up from being out at that catchment every 30 days and actually gives me the opportunity to focus a little bit more on what what are the populations actually looking like? What are the people that are out there looking at the populations actually doing? You know, it's I, I get it gives me an opportunity to spend more time doing other aspects of my job just rather than just focusing on on the water catchments. But I sound like I'm whining at this point about my job. I love what I'm doing. No, <laughs> don't no, get exactly. me wrong. We understand. So, so when you're, um, if you're looking for ways to help, I would start with those two options. Um, and again, go to the uh, the website Arizona Game and Fish Department azgfd.com, not gov.com, and um, and you'll find more information there. And isn't there like a volunteer program too that people can actually go and get trained and there's actually a volunteer method that they can actually almost become certified in aspects to where they become like a dedicated on-call person as needed or for those individuals that may be retired or have a flux schedule that want to get involved and kind of have like an official, you know, role responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, I have a, a couple of folks that work under under my wing right now that run water for me and, and check catchment levels for me. And it's, it's a big help. Uh, I mean, they're very much appreciated and, and, uh, uh, trained and have opportunities to do other things as well because they're already associated with and, and have demonstrated what they can do with the department. But yeah, there's, there's a volunteer program and, um, it's, a fairly successful program, I think. I mean, we get a lot of people that are interested in helping, and every little bit helps. So, yeah, we Joe Sayer up in twenty two. We've worked with him um, over the last couple of years, and if I know he has a volunteer that Mike spoke with that specifically has you know a truck and a trailer to go out there, and then we found numerous you know pipes broken or you know it's got rain. All the others outline in that have water so there's something underground that it's not being able to mm-hmm. to maintain that and then they've you know dug it up and fixed that so that you know those animals in that that core area benefit from it um tell us uh, a little bit about some of the other issues that you guys are facing um as from a a warden standpoint 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the biology and we're talking about uh, wildlife conservation. Water's important for all animals, but water's especially, especially important here in Arizona just because we're in the southwest and the, all the droughts that we've been experiencing and whatnot. But what are some other big issues that you guys are experiencing from your aspect or from your point of view? Yeah, well, um, at, at this point in time, uh, we're, we're coming up onto watercraft season. And uh, so there's going to be a big focus on boating safety and mm -hmm. especially OUI operating under the influence. Um, I can't tell you how many people I encounter every time I'm on the water, especially during holiday weekends, that feel like it's the Wild West and can, they can just do whatever they want. Um, in fact, as a matter is, you can't. It's not right. not a particularly. I mean, it's like you can't drink and drive. Don't don't operate a boat and drink and drive. Ex kind of thing. Exactly. That's exactly right. And uh, so we'll be very focused on that for the for the summer months. Um, I'll be out at Alamo Lake for a portion of that. I'll be out at Lake Havasu as well. That's also. I'm in, sure that gets crazy up there. It is. Um, it's a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting a lot of non-residents and a lot of residents, but not, I mean, a lot of people that don't live in Lake Havasu go there. I'm sure that population explodes and you got to deal with a lot of nonsense. And this should be a more interesting year than some in the past. COVID has obviously um, really changed the dynamic that we see out in the field in right. a lot of different places. And I expect that it's going to be extra crowded now. And so many people, I mean, this happened last year. We had a lot of, with the way that the, the timings uh, worked out for lockdowns and not lockdowns, and now we're free and now we're not. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it just, uh, we ended up on Havasu during Memorial Day weekend, and we saw way more people out there than we had in, in previous years. Maybe not way more, maybe more like, uh, you know, but you it, saw an increase because everybody's increase. outside recreating, whether they're hunting exactly. or not. People are out in the boat. People are out outdoors. Period. Yeah, camping, just getting outside. So, so that's that's obviously a big focus for us. The water, uh, uh, you know, the, the the boat operators, the PWC operators. We we want to make sure that they're out there being safe. Anglers mm -hmm. are going to be a big deal out there at this point. Um, you know, bass is is bass and stripers are going to be the the main focus. Um, and we're we're kind of we're leveling out from our off highway vehicle traffic as well. Um, we're still seeing uh, an increase in that traffic, and um, it, it's interesting. The boaters and and the off highway vehicle operators they don't seem to have the same uh, I'll say moral ethic okay. as like a hunter does. You know, when you go, when you become a hunter, you typically, you'll go through hunter ed or you've got somebody mentoring you and how mm -hmm. to do it, how to do it, you know, the right way, whatever that is, right? You've got someone that's teaching you, if you do it this way, you're going to get yourself in trouble or you're going to damage something or you're going to hurt yourself and so on and so forth. Right. You don't have the same level of mentorship, I think, with boaters and with off-highway vehicle operators. And... And and they don't um, they don't seem to have the same level of care when they're out in the field operating either. And that's I, I'm sort of generalizing, and that's not fair to 
the people that are actually conscientious and, and pay attention to what they're doing and care about what, what they're doing. But I, I see so much more of it with those operators as opposed to hunters. And I think it has, I think it's a direct correlation to how they are trained to do that activity. Right. You're, you're trained in how to hunt based on somebody showing you how to hunt your father or your mother or your older brother or whatever it was. You went through hunter education. You learned about hunter ethics. You learned about the North American model for conservation. You learned about all these different things that go into the, the makeup of being a hunter and mm-hmm. why it's important. The, the why is always the most, the biggest thing. Um, if you can answer the why, people generally are comfortable with the, the rule or the law. Um, so, so you get that answered when you're going through hunter ed. You get that answered when you're dealing with your, your when you're being mentored as a hunter or as an angler for that matter. Um, you don't have the same. Yeah, you can the, just go out and buy it. Yeah, and... I, I've got the money. I'm going to buy this new side-by-side that's, you know, a 1,000 horsepower and whatever, and I'm just going to go tear off into the countryside and not think about what it is that I'm doing. Little do they realize that they're, they're making wildcat roads that shouldn't be there. They're destroying habitat in the process. They're spooking out all kinds of animals and possibly causing them to die, mm-hmm. uh, n- not to mention any of the native plant species that are out there that are being damaged or are, um, you know, threatened, endangered, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's, there's just a whole lot going on out there. And similarly with the, um, with the boaters, you know, it, it, it really is a feeling of, you know, this is the wild west and I can kind of get away with anything, not recognizing or not realizing that there are actually rules of the waterway, laws right. of the waterway that you have to follow. And if you don't follow them, then I'm going to have a conversation with you. Right. <laughs> yep. Like totally, I mean, everybody, you get dehydrated in alcohol out on the boat. That's <clears throat> fun. I mean, everybody wants to go out and have a good time, but you get dehydrated and, and, and you're intoxicated and then you get behind that steering wheel, you're not making wise decisions and you're not only affecting yourself, you're affecting anyone else you come in contact with. That's why you see on all those news stories of boating accidents and someone drowning and you're like, that's a 30, 40 year old person. They should be able to, to make it, but there's so much more behind the scenes. Um, they get it knocked unconscious. They, you know, break an arm, getting flown out, flung out of a, a boat, or they're intoxicated and, and aren't, you know, in 100% of their senses, right? I mean, mm-hmm. is that a correct uh, assumption? Yeah, and sometimes it's even more mundane than that. I mean, you've got somebody ransom on, uh, riding on the transom, and they're getting exhaust from the okay from the engine. It's carbon monoxide, right? Carbon monoxide poisoning. They pass out. They fall at the back, and they're not going to stay afloat Mm-mm. because they don't. They're not conscious. <laughs> right. It's true. Um, Good point. Think about that. It, 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 and that's the that, that's the real crux, right? Like when you when you talk about hunters, you get that why. When you talk about boaters, you don't get the chance to even ask why. Well, why can't I ride on the transom? It's more comfortable up here. The wind is blowing. The whatever. They don't recognize that. The regulations on your boat and the manufacture of your boat are nothing compared to like the environmental regulations and compliance that your car has to be mm-hmm. has to go through. So, the and and uh, I don't I don't want to say rightfully so, but you know the the manufacturers that that make these machines 
they are not as closely regulated because it's not as much of an environmental impact as like a Ford or a Chevy would be. Right. Um, because there just aren't as many, but that doesn't make it any less dangerous for you. And, and because you don't necessarily have the, why can't I ride on the back of the transom? You won't understand that I'm going to cite you every single time that you're doing that because it is so dangerous and it's so inherently dangerous and people don't even recognize how dangerous it is. And you're, the inhibitions get lowered and, mm-hmm. and you know, we're not going to, we won't go down that rabbit hole, but uh, <laughs> it's true. I mean, everybody likes to have a good time and we're, we're all for that. You got to, it boils down to making wise decisions. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Exactly. And I'm just going to expand one quick thing to kind of derail it is uh, you brought up the Chevy Ford. So Chet and I are always having the Chevy and Ford thing. Oh. And I'm glad you brought up the, the Chevy because that's always breaking down. That's why it's so heavily regulated. So that's, <laughs> that is a big negative. Um, if you will go to Game and Fish headquarters, you will see the vast majority of running vehicles are Chevys because those make it out in those remote areas. I'm, this is not a lie. This is just true facts. <laughs> I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to tell you about the Ford that I have parked outside. Then the department truck. <laughs> We're only talking positive things about GM. Okay. <laughs> We, we've, we haven't seen my truck break down, but we've seen Mike's truck break down, and yeah. that, that is a, a Ford. That is guilt. That is guilty right there. <laughs> um, so, of, so, yeah, so uh, third on, on that list, but probably no less important, we are dealing with some poaching as well. Um, we're constantly on the lookout for people doing doing silly things that they shouldn't be doing. They know they shouldn't be doing it, and... Um, I think this has been, uh, and you know, everybody says what an unprecedented year 2020 was, and I, I think it it really applies in this category as much as it does anywhere else. I mean, <clears throat> that this pandemic has driven people out into the into the woods, into the desert, in droves that we had never seen before, and 100. Um, percent I, I think that um, I think that's done two things for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually, believe it or not, it's made my job a little bit easier because I have more eyes in the field calling in to report. I saw this. I saw that. There's one of me to cover the entire area of Unit 41 and 42. My eyes are good. They're really, really good. I have great eyesight, but I can't see it all that. Right. You know, exactly. if you're out in the field and you see something, you can call that in to our Operation Game Thief hotline that's a 24-hour hotline yep and i think it's what 1-800-357-0700-352-0700-352 yep so that's back from when i went through hunter safety they ingrained it in us back then 30 years ago should be on if you have a paper license it's on the back of your license if you have a printed license um i think it may be on there too i don't know but a a quick website jaunt will will find that for you but you you being in the field as a hunter, as an outdoorsman, as a recreationalist, if you see something and you know that's not right, or even if you're not sure, you can call that Operation Game Thief hotline and report it. And that information gets to me, and then I can investigate it. I can go out and I can expand on that. And, and these are things, you know, we, we get calls like that all the time, and we end up making really big cases because somebody saw something and said something. Mm-hmm. And so that, that'll be my public service announcement right now is if you're out there in the field and you see something that doesn't make sense, even if it's not hunting, even if it's off a, off highway vehicle, or you've got somebody operating their boat like a moron, 
you know, those, and no offense to morons, but come on. Yep. <laughs> if you see it and you report it, there's something that can be done about it. If you see it and you don't say anything, I'm not going to call you complicit, but I will say, come on. I'm, do your I, part. You, you and I both want the same thing. We want these people to do it the right way. And you as a hunter, you go out of your way to try and do the right thing. Sometimes we make mistakes. We, we talked do. about we'll that do. at the we'll at the youth camp. You know, sometimes mistakes happen. You just, there's, it's called hunting, not shopping, right? Mm-hmm. It, yep. It's, there's, you never know what's going to come your way. Um, and mistakes happen. And, and that's where my, you know, my leeway really comes into play. My, um, but if, if you know that this is wrong, you know that this is a mistake or more than a mistake, intentional, that's, that's what I want to be involved in. That's, that's the crux of where my law enforcement focus needs to be. It's, it's fine and dandy to go out and be the high howdy ranger, check your license and send you on your merry way and swap stories about, you know, the big buck that got away or whatever. Right. Um, but where I really want to have the impact is is on those people that are taking more deer than they're supposed to to take, are taking those deer without being drawn. Because when you go through the draw and somebody goes out there and, and shoots that deer and they don't have a tag, they're essentially stealing deer from the state of Arizona. And ultimately that means they're stealing the deer from you, you mm-hmm. the Arizona resident. That all it belongs to you just the same as it belongs to me and everybody else. It's it's held in trust, so to speak. And my job is to make sure that it stays in the trust and somebody doesn't just reach their hand into the cookie jar and take the cookies out before you're, before you get a chance to have yours. Exactly. Is there some, I like milk and cookies. So I do too. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Was there a, a small core few items that if somebody witnesses something that they, that, that should be essential that they should have to be reporting with? Is there a certain core concepts that if they had that basic information that would help expand your investigation or is it mainly just tell them exactly what they see is what they want or is there extra details that they can maybe make a little extra effort and obtain whatever that detail may be that's essential with what you do to to all of my junior detectives out there yes what we're looking for uh, are ways that i can identify who is involved right so a license plate is very important as much description as you can give me on the individual or individuals involved a vehicle description as well and then what you saw even if you don't think it's necessarily important i want to i want to know about it because there are there are little details that can make or break an investigation so um, i would i would say find find a way to get a a, a number a, a license plate number specifically short of that uh, you know, just, just sit and observe and that's going to, and, and record as much as you can. If you've got a camera with you, everybody's got a camera with them on their smartphone, right? Take pictures better yet. Take video. If you've got video opportunity, take video of these guys doing what they're doing because that video won't lie. It may not be the best quality. It may not even have good audio, but we can, we can corroborate what it is that you said with what the video is showing mm-hmm. and actually make some really good cases that way. So <clears throat> that's a great point because I know I was told too, if you're a long ways and you got your binoculars, just put your video, your phone right up to your binoculars and that's actually going to zoom it in and be a lot more clear where you're actually zooming in on those individuals, you know, mm-hmm. using your binoculars as a tool to help you bring that in. You might be able to see it with your eyes and you pull your phone up and it's distorted and then just move your phone right in front of that binocular. 
there there are um, I know they have little add-on contraptions that you can connect your phone specifically to the binocular lens so that it doesn't move and stays like a phone scope yeah Uh, and it's I've got a couple of those that I work with and and they work really well Uh, on spotting scopes they're amazing so if you're out somewhere spotting and you see somebody stalking and you know the season's not open yet well that's that's your cue that might be a clue yeah you you might you might have something here so absolutely um record it video camera, whatever you've got on you, the, the more information you've got to give me, I don't care if it's an information dump, I'm happy to take all of it. And, and we will make really good cases with that. That's good. Everybody remember, just either keep it in your phone, you got that with you. You can uh, get online and have that phone number ready for Operation Game Thing if you see anything or if you see, I know I've called in the past um, in one of the metro units, we've found you know a bunch of discarded animals there that weren't harvested and i don't know what ever came of it but a couple years in a row we've seen you know a coyote and a javelina and a mule deer and a fox all dumped and not skinned out or anything and then next year same spot same area are they roadkill and people are just moving them out of the way and they happen to be in that same area possibly but i've called and and, and let them know and whoever's in charge of you know, 25 and 26M, they, they come out and document it and, and do their investigation. Um, talking about animals, and we'll, we'll start wrapping up. What is, um, what's your favorite animal or do you have a favorite story about uh, helping animals that people can relate to or, or any funny story about saving or rescuing <laughs> animals? I know we, we've been asked that question. We had some people reach out, and that was one of the questions is they want to hear, you know, some of your some of your guys' stories from your guys' point of view on what you guys are seeing because you're out there so much more than a normal hunter. Yeah. So you guys are seeing things that are... Well, so there's I've got a couple of different stories that I'll, I'll share with you, and hopefully I'll, I can keep them short. I don't want to run this podcast into the ground here. Um <clears throat> Uh, earlier this year, um, I got a call from, uh, an acquaintance, just somebody had contacted in the field and, and gave him my card. They, they said that there was a, a deer in the canal, the CAP canal, um, over by Burnt Mountain. And I thought, those are nine foot fences. How did this deer get in? I don't. I don't believe you. But I'll go down and investigate anyway. And sure enough, there was there was a doe that was running back and forth, panting. It had been it had been running for a while. Um, I had two other officers come down with me. And um, <clears throat> I have experience in, in a previous career, I worked as a zookeeper and I worked with hooved animals. So I, I've got a basic understanding about herd mentality and, and where that bubble, where that bubble is that you can, you can push animals. You guys, as, as hunters out in the field, you know that that bubble is pretty big Mm -hmm. and you probably get a good idea about what I'm talking about here. But for those that don't know what I mean, there's a, there's a distance that you can uh, approach an animal, 
uh, and it's different with every animal and probably different by species more generally. Uh, there's a distance uh, that you can approach an animal by and still have the animal not respond to you. Once you reach that threshold, whatever that distance is, the animal will start to move away from you or move in response to you. So you pay attention to what that distance is, and then you use that to gauge where you need to be and how to get that animal to go where you want it to go. It's basic herding 101, right? Cows, horses, deer, giraffe, whatever. <laughs> Assuming the giraffe won't run away, and they don't always. Um, <clears throat> anyway, this, this particular deer was in a canal. There's not a, or along the roadway of the canal. It's a deep canal. And if the deer goes in, the deer's probably not coming out short of lasso. And we have, I have that as a tool, uh, a tool in my toolbox, which mm -hmm. is ridiculous to think about. And I don't know how to use it. So <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to. Yep. Um, so yep. I had to drive, I had to drive in on the South end and I had to be mindful of, of where he was, uh, where she was rather on the, on the North shore and try to move slow enough in a truck and, and you guys may or may not know this, but um, those animals respond far differently to people than they do to an, uh, to vehicles. Mm -hmm. So vehicle, as big and scary as it is and as dangerous as we know they are, the animals don't know that. They're not that worried about it because the vehicles rarely, not always, but rarely do, do they chase. Um, so I had to drive past, drive around, come back up the backside. I had one officer stage at the gate, the entryway, in his vehicle, and then the other, I, she was going to come around behind me, and I ended up having her stay on the south shore so that she was pushing the deer as close to the fence as she could, and then I had to creep up behind it and really just slowly push. Um, but <clears throat> at one point, the vehicle ceased to be scary enough to get her to move. And so I had to climb out at that point and start walking after her and chase her. That was successful. It was nice. It was, it was a really um, simple solution. And it didn't take, aside from a little bit of time, it didn't take too much resource to get her out of there. Um, but the level of problems that could have come with that, oh, yeah. it, I mean, that could have gone sideways so quickly and been a problem. Now... Where I got sideways, um, this is a, a less fun story, but still funny. Um, I, I showed up at a catchment, and it was a, a system. It was a two separate systems. One of them was dry, and the other one had plenty of water in it. But the dry one was the old system with a cement tank, um, a cement cube, rectangle-shaped cube with steps that go down in it. There's a a doorway in the bottom that's probably 24 inches tall and maybe 12 inches wide and it leads back in and there's mud and there's some dirt in there and so when these things dry out one of the first things that I do I'm not worried about the that particular catchment being dry because I know there's water in the other catchment which is you know 10 yards away so there's water there that the animals can access but this particular one I want to clean the dirt out clean the muck out get as much out of it as I can so that there's more more room for water right so I get down there and I've got my flat shovel and I'm scraping the cement and it's really loud and obnoxious. And I look up for a second and I look back down and there's a big hairy animal out at my feet charging out and hits my, hits my shovel. Scared the bejesus out of me. Oh, yeah. I, ju I jump up. 
I'm thinking badger, right? Like, <laughs> well, this is the end of my boots. This is going to be. It was a javelina. A javelina had crawled inside the water catchment and had come running out. Wow. Um, and was trying to get away. I think the scraping is really what, what drove him to, to get up and run. Um, but I didn't, in you know, sh- reaction time and what do I need to do to protect myself, I wasn't jump up and jump out. It was take the shovel and smack the thing as hard as I possibly could with the shovel. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it was not, uh, I didn't hit him that hard, but it was enough to like get his attention. And I actually caused him to, these steps, the steps that go into these catchments are probably two inches wide. So very easy to lose your footing if you're not paying attention in wearing boots, let alone tiny hooves. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tumbled over and fell down and I, I kind of stayed still at that point and he jumped up and, and ran off and got out of there. But um, I, I changed my pants and yeah. then, uh, you know, gathered myself up and went home because that was, <laughs> yeah. that was the end of my day. <laughs> For sure. Freak you out. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. You thought it was just mud and leaves in uh, there, and yep. that thing comes running out. Ugh. That, yeah, that, that would be. That's not the cave I expected the animals to come out of. Yeah, no, no kidding. Yeah, what do you think he was doing in there, just trying to stay cool? Yeah, or? yeah, I, I would guess that's probably it. I mean, it was a, a lone javelina, which was to me a little weird, but that's um, not not out of the realm of possibilities. But right. yeah, I mean, it was it was the you know towards the end of the day, so it's still hot in the afternoon and. This is midsummer. This is July or oh. August, probably. So just miserable. I'd want to crawl in there too. Probably. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, not, I, there may have been some moisture down in the back, but there wasn't anywhere I was in the front where I was scraping. So it was a, it was a very interesting end of <laughs> that a, day. That's yeah. an eye opener. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Can uh, we're we're wrapping it up? We got so many other times that uh, hopefully we got so many other questions. I apologize. Uh, lots of people have asked us to ask. Um, all these questions and we apologize for not getting to all of them hopefully we can have Brian on again but is there any parting words that you want to leave us with any words of wisdom man stay in school Um. (laughs) (laughs) I would expand on that because I have a bachelor's in public administration so you have the same degree it's it's a great degree it's a universal degree that can open up a lot of doors and a lot of different means and methods there's no question so yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, if you're a hunter or an angler and you know someone who is not a hunter or an angler, ask them to come along with you. Try to make it something that, like, uh, show them the passion that you have for, for it and help them understand what that passion is. I think one of the biggest problems that we as an agency and I think hunting in general across the country is encountering is maybe part of its misperception, but a lot of it is just disinterest. And my funding, the, the funding for my department, comes from you hunting. It comes from you fishing. It comes from you operating boats and you operating off-highway vehicles doesn't come from the citations I issue. It comes from you buying a license or you buying a tag. Mm-hmm. And if, if as, as our hunting population ages and, and it's not, doesn't seem to be getting replaced at the same rate as 
we would like with younger, newer, inexperienced hunters, um, we could be looking at something catastrophic down the road where we don't have the opportunity to go hunting, where we don't have the opportunity to go fishing because there's no money to do it. Um, so I would say if you've got someone who doesn't hunt or who doesn't fish, bring them along with you. Show them what it's all about. Show them what you know, why you're passionate about it, and help them understand it and help them enjoy it the way that you do because that's that's how your pastime, that's how your, um, <clears throat> your persona, because I think that's how we kind of, we identify ourselves as I'm an angler, I'm a hunter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, otherwise the big fifth wheel that you brought in with the side-by-side -side and the nice rifle, that's all just for show, right? You're right. just a, a glorified camper at that point. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, you identify, it's your persona. You identify as a hunter. Help them understand why and help them understand how they can be involved with that, or, or at least make it inviting in a way that isn't such a, right? wouldn't be a turnoff. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I hope my kids, both my boys grow up, um, but I enjoy taking them out and, you know, just scouting. We're not hunting, you know, mm -hmm. I'll explain to them. Maybe they're, they're kind of young still. They don't, they don't want to be around, you know, gunshots or, or whatnot, but just being out there and looking through a pair of binoculars and just kind of hiking around, yeah, we're looking at an area, but it may not even be an area that you're hunting. It's just getting out there and explaining to them that all the things that you see or that you're walking by, explain that this is what that hoof print means. That's what they're eating. Can you see these prickly pears, you know, torn apart? And you're educating them and mm -hmm. they know that they need to keep all that around and uh, anyone that grows up here knows how precious water is. But, yeah, just education. I, I could totally see that. you got to get everybody on board with um, natural resources and management. And, and it's easy to do it with kids, absolutely, because <clears throat> they're you know, sort of almost a captive audience, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll say. But, you know, if you can do it with your neighbor or your, you know, your friend down the street or somebody that doesn't do it necessarily, mm -hmm. that, that can make a difference. And I, th I think that that's a great segue, what you're talking about is maybe not necessarily the hunting process, but the scouting process, the preparation process, the, you know, what goes into going on a, a week-long you know, camping trip, right. quotes around it, where you end up going and looking for deer or, or javelina or whatever it is. Um, I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's a heck of a lot of fun, um, but not everybody gets it. And, and I, I think that the, the more we can expand on that, the more that we can be uh, sort of uh, inviting and welcoming for that process, I think the better off we will be as hunters, the better off I can say the department will be as an agency, and I think the better off the country will be as a whole uh, in terms of being able to maintain wildlife conservation. I mean, we didn't even touch on this, but I am, Arizona Game and Fish Department, is the conservation organization in the state of Arizona. Right. If there's conservation going on on the ground, it's because I'm involved. It's because the department is involved. U.S. Fish and Wildlife can be there, uh, you know, World Wildlife Organization or whatever, World Wildlife Fund, whatever that is. You know, they, they've got their own things that they do, 
but they're not boots on the ground the way right. that we are. They're not the ones that are out in the field doing the kinds of work that, that I'm talking about right here. You know, black-footed ferrets and uh, spring snails and uh, California condors. You know, these are all species that, that the department has worked with, um, narrow-headed garter snakes. We, we do all of that stuff, and it's, it's through this funding. It's through this North American model of hunters and fishers, fishermen, anglers, um, doing what they love to do. Right. If, if those guys go away, then this conservation model goes away. 100%. And that's, that's dangerous. <clears throat> yep, exactly. And I think that's why it's so essential to get involved in all the different hunting organizations that are directly tied with Game and Fish because we're just a, a branch of support through them, through all the members and everything else. I think sometimes we forget that all the hunting organizations have one goal, and that's conservation. And as the as we just understood, is the Arizona Game and Fish Department is the head of the conservation and all these hunting organizations are basically branches of a support, even though we maybe represent different species or have different philosophies and things, but know that the idea is that we're here to protect Arizona's conservation. So, <clears throat> Mike, you want to end us in a prayer? Sure, I'll do it. All right. Uh, first, we want to thank everybody for joining us today, and uh, thank you, Brian, for coming on and uh, kind of giving us a little bit of insight of what it means to be an Arizona Game and Fish Department wildlife manager. So, Lord God in heaven, we just come to you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we know that uh, as we come in this time, Lord, that uh, policing is under such scrutiny, and there's so mis lots of misunderstandings and perceptions. So I just ask right now, Lord, that for all of our officers, Lord, that are out there that are in the policing world, that you would just protect them, guide them, bless them, Lord, give them encouragement, give them wisdom, give them strength, and give them understanding. And Lord, all the citizens that um, come in contact with each of these uh, officers that are policing, Lord, we just ask that they would just have a paradigm shift in their mindset, their views, their understanding, Lord, and show a little respect and, and follow, you know, to a tent of law and order, Lord, as, as you created it, Lord, to where whatever the issue may be, Lord, that there would be a positive outcome. And I just ask that you would just bless the families also of these law enforcements because we do know that there is tremendous stress as they know that their, their loved ones go out to protect and serve. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Christian Hunters of America podcast. If you have any prayer requests or you require any information, please look us up on christianhuntersofamerica.org or you can reach us on Facebook or Instagram under Christian Hunters of America. Christian Hunters of America.